We've been talking about divine guidance for a number of weeks. We want to continue along that line. And so we've used three scriptures as text scriptures, beginning points. Romans chapter 8 and Proverbs chapter 20. Romans chapter 8 verse 14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Verse 16 tells us how. The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now the Bible also tells us in James in uh, Proverbs chapter 20 verse 27, it says, The Spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. We've looked at and uh, talked at some length about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, where Paul, speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, identifies the makeup of man. He said, I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless into the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, when the Bible says in Proverbs twenty twenty seven, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, that means God's going to enlighten us through our spirits, not through our souls, not through our intellect, and not through our bodies or through physical circumstance. So one of the most important things in my thinking, in my understanding, for, the, for any Christian to know, which is that God leads us and guides us by our spirit, that may be the great unknown thing in the body of Christ. We know and we've, uh, we see the world around us and all the, the, the efforts and the money that's put into physical development, all the money that's put into the educational systems of our world to educate the mind. But where does the education of the Spirit come from? Where does the development of the Spirit come from? Well, the Bible's real clear that there's only one thing that will fit or feed your spirit, and that's the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, when he was tempted of the devil, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Peter wrote to the church, and he said, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So the word is the only agent or means given under heaven that feeds or fits or develops our spirits. Now there are three verses of scripture that are really important. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. There are three verses of scripture that are of extreme importance when it comes to spiritual de uh, development, when it comes to spiritual growth. The first one is in Romans chapter 1, really verse 2, but I want to keep it in context. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations in that last phrase, instead of reasonable service, with spiritual, wor spiritual worship. In other words, when Jesus at the well of Samaria talked to the woman in John chapter 4 and said, They that worship God must worship in spirit and in truth, we charismatics have a tendency to think that he's talking about tongues. Because we think anything that, that has to do with spiritual worship has to do with speaking in tongues in the, uh, through the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But spiritual worship is you disciplining your body. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and he said, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are both God's. God paid a price for your body and your spirit. 
And so he wants us to do something with our body. And notice it's our responsibility, not his. He says, you present your body a living sacrifice. Well, the body uh, is owned or belongs to God, but you're the caretaker of it. So it's not a work for him to do. It's a work for you to do. He goes on in verse 2 and says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove. The word prove means to experience. What is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God? So he's telling us right off the bat, Paul's writing to Christians, and he's saying that we have a responsibility regarding our bodies and our souls, which the mind is the major part of. The soul is the mind, the will, and the emotions. So he's telling us to do something with our minds, us to do something with our bodies, which means that the new birth though it makes us new creatures in Christ Jesus, a new creation, doesn't have any impact on the body or the mind. The development of the Spirit through the training of the Word of God will have an impact on our mind and our bodies. But salvation in and of itself, the new birth, has absolutely no impact on the body or the, the soul, meaning the mind or the understanding. James said it this way, James 1.21, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, it means lay aside distractions, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. Now he's telling Christians, born again, spirit-filled Christians, that their souls aren't saved. Well, they're born again. Heaven is assured for them. They become a part of the family of God. But their souls haven't been saved. And apart from receiving with meekness, meekness just means be teachable, without us making an effort to be teachable and to learn the Word of God, our souls won't be saved. David said it this way in Psalm 23. He said, The Lord restoreth my soul. Now David was a man that spent a lot of his time in meditating in the Word. David's most famous psalms are a result of him meditating in the Word. And when we talk about meditation, we're not talking about Eastern meditation. I think a lot of Christians get spooked by the word meditation because the only thing that they know anything about is somebody sitting in a lotus position and humming. Well, that's not what the Bible calls meditation. You remember in Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8, he said, this book of the law, meaning the Word of God, that's all they had with the law, was the law of Moses. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. So meditating has something to do with speaking. So he said, don't let the word of God depart out of your mouth. The only way you can keep it from departing after you say it is to say it again. And that's how meditation, scriptural meditation, biblical meditation is defined. The speaking of the word over and over and over again. Because when you speak the word of God, you're planting it in your heart. When you speak the word of God, you're watering it. Just like Jesus said, the kingdom of God is as if a man planted seed in the ground. Well, we know seed planted in the ground won't do any good unless you take care of it. And the way you take care of it is to repeat the word over and over and over again. 
So he said, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, after you meditate, after you become a doer of the word, for then you shall make your way prosperous and you shall have good success. Notice God doesn't even make your way prosperous for you. You do that on your own through the operation of the word. I think a lot of people in their Christian lives are trying to get God to do something that only the word of God put in practice in our lives can do. And when God doesn't violate his word to do what Christians want, then they take a position that God's against them or God's not on their side. But the Bible says that the word of God is the power of God and salvation. That word salvation is an all-inclusive term. It means healing. It means rescue. It means deliverance. It means protection. It means to make sound. So what the prayer life of a lot of Christians turns out to be is that they're asking God to do things apart from his word that he said only his word could do. We see this in healing. A lot of times people want to come for their healing. They don't want to find out what the word says. In Jesus' ministry on a couple of occasions, the occasions were where the greatest multitudes were healed by the power of God. But it says that people came to hear and be healed. They came to hear and be healed. They didn't just ignore the truth of the word that Jesus spoke. They recognized that what he said was powerful. So they came to hear and be healed. But a lot of people don't want to hear. They just want me or some other pastor or somebody, whoever it might be, to pray a prayer for them and God to change things to, to the way they want them to be. Well, God can't violate his word. It says he sent his word and healed us. So any situation where God will heal us apart from or outside of his word is at best most extremely rare. Because that's the, word that the, that's the work that the word is to do. Now I've got a question for you. I'll ask you the same thing the Lord asked me this week. What's the purpose of spiritual growth? What is the purpose of spiritual growth? Why does God want us to grow spiritually? It doesn't make a difference on whether we go to heaven. Heaven is assured for any of us that have made Jesus the Lord of our lives. Heaven is available for all of us who have become born again. So if spiritual growth and spiritual development doesn't get you to heaven, what's the purpose for spiritual growth? Turn with me to James chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 1. Which says, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we receive the greater condemnation. In the early days of the church, it seems that they had the same tendencies, or people had the same tendencies, to try to be the one to tell other people what to do. James is saying somebody that has been given to teach has a gift of teaching given by the Father will receive the greater condemnation. We've got more to live up to. And so James is encouraging people, don't step over into places you don't belong. 
Now, that's not just true for teachers. That's true for everybody. One thing I found out about pastoring for um, 32 years now, I guess, going on 33. One thing I found out about pastoring is that I've got a job that everybody on the planet thinks they know how to do better than me. Now, you may go to a second doctor for a, or go to a doctor for a second opinion. But nobody pretends to know what a doctor knows. You may inquire of your legal counsel what you should do in any given situation in legal matters. But nobody thinks they know more than the lawyer. Unless it's another lawyer just thinks he's better than the first guy. But when it comes to being a pastor, everybody knows what they ought to do. And that's always amazed me because there are a lot of times I don't know what to do. That's not to say that I'll go ask other people what they think. But when it comes to the things of God, it's so easy for people to think they've got something that they don't have. Well, let's keep reading. My brethren, be not many masters, knowing we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. This word offend is going to be used over the next several verses. And it means to trip or to stumble. It's not talking about a purposeful action to hurt somebody. He's just saying we all trip and fall. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouths that they may obey us and we turn about their whole body. Behold also the ships which though they be great and are driven of fierce winds... Yet they are turned about with a very small helm, whithersoever the governor or the captain of the ship listeth. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. He's saying no matter how big a fire you get, no matter how much damage the fire uh, makes or creates, it all starts as a spark, single spark. Little fire, big fire, fire that destroys the city. All start with a spark, one single spark. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. For every kind of beast, and the birds, and of serpents, and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Now, folks, let me remind you that James is writing to Christians. And this is his assessment of the operation of the tongue. So let me ask you this. Is that a description of how God made the tongue? When God looked at the earth... made an end and put an end to everything that he created. The Bible says he looked upon it and said it's very good. Well, was the tongue like that when God said it was good? Couldn't be. James is saying it again by the Holy Ghost. So we can say this is God speaking to us through the Apostle James. He's saying the tongue is full of evil, full of poison. It's a deadly fire. And he says, no man can tame it. 
So this shows us one of the great changes that occurred may be the most important change that occurred when Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden. So I'm back to my original question. What's the purpose of spiritual growth or spiritual development? Well, folks, it's all part of God's original plan. God's original plan, as identified in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. He said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have dominion over the works of our hands, the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and so forth. Man was created to have authority. So what's the purpose of spiritual development? To gain or regain control of our tongue so that we can exercise our spiritual authority on the earth. It's spiritual development. It's the learning and the growing in God's word, in the knowledge of God's word that makes us a candidate, that makes us able to do the works of Jesus here on the earth. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, occupy until I come. <clears throat> well, what does that mean? When Jesus said, occupy until he comes, does that mean that he wants us just to hang on to life and hope we finally make it in when Jesus returns? Or does it mean what he told his disciples? The works that I do shall you do also. And even greater works than these shall you do because of them. I go to my Father. See, the occupation force that Jesus left here on the earth was designed from the very beginning to have authority. That's the reason God made man, is to have authority on the earth. God never changed in his purpose. He never will change in his purpose. Now, if we can let our minds understand certain things, I think it will be helpful for us. When Adam and Eve were on the earth before the fall, we don't know how long they lived here. There, it was probably for several generations before they ever fall or before they fell. But during that time, prior to sin entering into the world and death, spiritual death by sin, there was nothing that could hurt mankind. God had told man, you can eat of every fruit of the tree, everything that's here is for you, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Stay apart, stay away from that one. In the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Well, he didn't die physically that day, so he's not talking about physical death. But he did die spiritually. He was separated from God. And we see from James chapter 3, what a big part of spiritual death entails. Adam lost control of his tongue. Prior to the point that he fell, all the knowledge that Adam had came from his spirit and not from some education. Now, I don't doubt at all that God, when he walked with Adam in the cool of the garden, the cool of the day in the garden, I don't have any doubt that he explained certain things to him I don't have any doubt that Adam's intellect must have been staggering before the fall. The Bible says he 
named all the animals according to the characteristics of their kind. Medical science tells us that we use about 10% of our brains. I don't think that was true for Adam and Eve in the garden. Why would God give you a brain and only let you use 10% of it? So every bit of information that Adam had about the earth, about how things operated, were as a result of the fact that he was created in the image and likeness of God. God is a spirit. So man, by definition, was a spirit being. And that spirit, which was in constant contact with the Heavenly Father, was the source of all information. Now remember, God gave him instruction to guard and protect the garden. So whatever exercise of authority Adam would need to use came as a result of the knowledge of his spirit, not his mind, and certainly not his body. It seems, before the fall, Adam wasn't even aware that he had a body. Now, I don't mean that in the, in the most literal sense. But one of the first things that he says, or that the scripture says, about when Adam and Eve fell. It says they saw they were naked and they were ashamed. Well, clothes didn't fall off of them, did they? When he sinned, it wasn't like the clothes that they already had disappeared. So they must have been clothed with something else that caused them to be unaware of their physical condition. Maybe it was the glory of God. You remember when uh, Moses and Elijah appeared to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Those were spirit beings. And they shined like snow glistening or like the sun glistening off of snow. Maybe it was that way for Adam and Eve. No way for us to know for sure. It's interesting to think about it. But I'm not trying to build a doctrine on anything. But when they fell, their eyes were opened and they saw their physical condition. That was the first. That was the first. And based on what James tells us about the tongue, now all of a sudden, for the first time ever, for maybe for generations that they've been on the earth, for the first time ever, now they're dependent on some other source of information to live by because their spirits have been separated or estranged from God. Spiritual death means separation from God. So when they died spiritually, no longer... Do they have the Spirit of God in them? Now their existence is based on other things. And folks, that's the reason why our world majors on development of the flesh and the education of the mind. But that's not the way God wants it to be. Notice what James said. He said, if any man's able to bridle his tongue, Bridle means to control. He said, if any man is able to control his tongue, he can control the whole body. 
The key to the blessings of God, therefore, has to do with the words you speak. When Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He's talking about speaking the word of God that will bring you into experiencing for yourself God's plan and purpose for you. It all comes down to speaking the word. It all comes down to speaking the word. I read a lot on church history. And there are certain times, specific times that the Bible, that uh, historical records give us, show us, reveal to us about the persecution of the church. We know of the first generation persecution of the church. But by and large, those things that happened in the first century were not the worst of the persecutions. There were other times where the persecution of the church was much more severe, much more widespread. In fact, it got to a certain point, and I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but the church at Rome became the keepers of Orthodox Christianity. Now, that's not the Roman Catholic Church that we know of and that we have experience with in our day. But there were Gnostics. The word Gnostic means those that know. And there were different facets of Gnosticism which claimed that they had, one, one um, variation of it was that the Gnostics in this part of Gnosticism claimed to have special insight and special revelation that nobody else had. Another element of Gnosticism is that they believed that Jesus was not manifest in the flesh, that he came to earth like an angel would and carried on this 30-year hoax, but that he really wasn't born as a man. You can see John trying to alleviate and overcome some of that, that uh, line of reasoning in the letters that he wrote to the church. He said, every spirit that doesn't confess Jesus has come in the flesh is not of God. And so there were these different schools of thought and ideas that were a great, great threat to the early church. And so there were times of persecution one of the most severe times of persecution against the church. It was so widespread. It was so, I'm not sure how to describe it. It was so prevalent that the church at Rome wound up saying that not everybody that refused under threat of death, penalty of death, not everybody that refused to recant Jesus not everybody that refused to deny him could be considered a real martyr. There were so many people martyring, being, becoming martyrs because of their stand for their belief in God and in Jesus. That the Roman Catholic Church of that day tried to put the brakes on everything. They came up with the idea that if everybody that offered themselves to death, the death of the state was a martyr 
then it diluted the importance of martyrdom. Now, on the other hand, there were historical records. There are historical records that identify that sometimes up to three-quarters of a congregation did recant, did deny Jesus under penalty of death. Well, at one point in time, that most severe persecution and threat against the church it lasted about three years and again it's just one of them but it was those three years where a large part a large percentage of congregations denied Jesus what happened to them after that the church was faced with a, a situation where large numbers in some cases of people that recanted their faith denied Jesus now the persecution's over and they wanted to come back to the church and the church had a, a, a real dilemma legitimate dilemma what do you do with them You've got scriptures where Jesus, Jesus said, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. Does that mean these people aren't saved? What do you do? What should they do? Well, the church, as always, had the answer. They came up with a system of penance where if you paid enough money, the church would forgive you. So the, from that point forward, the grace of God came in and began to be the personal possession of the church, the bishops. Now, folks, what is Christianity supposed to do? We all know the change that it's made in us when we were born again. We all know because we put the word first in our lives. We all know the blessings of God and the things that he leads us into. But what is Christianity supposed to do? Is Christianity supposed to develop civilization? The early church thought so. But remember all the times that Jesus was approached by somebody and asked, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel now? They're looking for a political solution. They're looking for Christianity to create a political environment. And every time Jesus said the same thing, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. So from what Jesus said, we have to conclude that Christianity was intended to change man. But men and women shape civilizations, not Christianity. I'm not saying it doesn't have an effect. I'm not saying it shouldn't have an effect. I believe it should. But Christianity wasn't intended to create civilizations. Folks, the simple truth is 
this country is an extreme aberration. It was created by a convergence of a perfect storm-like situation where men that loved God saw the value of the word, recognized the value to society that keeping the word, operating by the word, would produce. And that's how America was formed. It didn't mean everybody was a Christian. There was a time when Christianity became the accepted religion of the state. Constantine became the emperor of the Byzantine Empire. And he was a Christian, influenced greatly by his mother, according to historical documents. And he made Christianity the state religion. Now, there were tons of great things that came about as a result of that. Christianity entered the mainstream. But now, with Constantine in position, now people are starting to turn to Christianity not because they love God, not because they see the value of what Jesus did for us as our Savior and our Redeemer, but for political means. And there's never been a time, there was about 300 years associated with this circumstance where Christianity is the state religion. There has never in church history been a time where the church was weaker. Never. Doctrine was changed radically. Because people became Christians for wrong reasons. It became advantageous for them financially as far as having the king's favor and so on. In other words, history tells us that Christianity thrives when it has to stand up for what it believes. Not when things are easy. Not when things are popular. Not when it's the thing to do. Now we as Christians are so blessed to live in a world, live in a country where we can vote according to our values. In 2016, there were 138 million people that voted. That represented 58% of those that were registered to vote. If I've got my numbers right, it was about 70 million that voted for President Trump. 68 million, maybe a little less, voted for Hillary Clinton. But there were 54 million Christians who stayed home. 54 million 
that stayed home. Now, I don't think there's any way for us to identify how many of the 70 million were Christians who did vote. But it's easy to see based on those numbers. The church could pretty much elect anybody they wanted to. It has been said, and I don't know if it's literally true or not, but it has been said that if all Christians voted their conscience, voted according to the values of the Word of God, not what they think, not their opinions, but voted according to what the Word of God teaches, then anybody that's not a Christian could even be elected dog catcher. Well, you can see the numbers bear that out. So this is not a sermon intended to get you out to vote. I do want you to vote. That is, I want you to vote if you're going to vote according to the Bible. If you're not going to vote according to the Bible, don't vote. <laughs> At least you won't be hurting the church. But folks, again... The question the Lord asked me, what's the purpose of spiritual growth? What's the purpose of spiritual development? It's God's original purpose. To exercise authority on the earth. To exercise authority on the earth. The word of God will show us where to exercise our authority. It will show us what God wants us to exercise our authority toward. It reveals to us, and it's the only thing that can reveal to us the kind of life that God wants us to live here on this earth. Finally, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's start in verse 11. Paul speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost said, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Now in the original Greek, Paul coined a new, a new word. It's not pastors and teachers, it's pastor teachers. Because the importance that was placed on pastoring in the early days of the church, the first century of the church, were for pastors to teach the Word of God so the people would be equipped. So specifically, I'm not saying that, that we do wrong by identifying them in different ways, but specifically, he identifies four ministry gifts. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. We've developed it into five, pastors and teachers. Now, why did he give these ministry gifts? For the perfecting of the saints. The word perfecting means complete furnishing. For the perfecting of the saints, for or to do the work of the ministry, for or resulting in the edifying of the body of Christ. Please notice who's supposed to do the work of ministry. Not the ministry gifts. 
They're supposed to teach you so you can be equipped so that you can do the work of the ministry. Because that's what brings about the edification or the building up of the church. How long is it supposed to last? Verse 13, till we all come in the unity of the faith and unto the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man. Notice that word perfect. It means complete. It means mature. Unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 13 tells us that the teaching of the word, the ministry of the ministry gifts, is designed to equip us so that we can be mature spiritually. So that we can be up to the work that Jesus identified for us to be. So that we could be joint heirs with him in our lives here on the earth. So that we could do the works of Jesus. Looks to me like the ministry gifts are falling down on the job. Or maybe it's the unwillingness of the the laity to receive the truth to be who Jesus died for us to be. So it's supposed to last till we all come into the unity of the faith and unto the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that or so that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine and the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to see. Notice Paul is saying by the Holy Ghost, that a part of spiritual maturity is that we become grounded and firmly established in the truth so that we're not taken in by deceptive practices of men. I've always been amazed at the things people would swallow. I've always been amazed at how people will put up with being mistreated by people in the ministry. I've always been amazed at the deception people accept. Verse 15, well, if he doesn't want us carried about back and forth with every wind of doctrine, what does he want us to do? Or who does he want us to be? Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which is the head, even Christ. Folks, the purpose of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity is for you and I to be Jesus here on the earth. For us to do the work of the Father, just like Jesus did. For us to do the works of Jesus, just like he said we would. And that all comes back to the tongue. And notice verse 15. It comes back to speaking the truth, which is the word of God. John 17, 17, Jesus said, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So if we're speaking the truth, that means we have to speak the word. And notice he tells us how to do it, in love. Not trying to beat people over the head with it. Not by pointing out their faults or flaws. 
but speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things under the measure of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you that we have the ability to control our tongues, to speak the word of God, and to speak the word of God only in love. We thank you, Lord, for the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as we speak your word to affect a healing and a cure in us from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. To bring us into maturity that we might be before the world who Jesus died for us to be. That we might walk worthy of you, Lord, unto all pleasing. Being fruitful in every good work. We thank you, Father. That your word never fails. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for guiding us into all truth. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand. I want to thank you for putting the word first in your life. People that aren't willing to do that don't, don't last very long around here. Through no fault of our own. But if you don't have a love for the word, then hearing the importance of the word in your life falls on deaf ears. That's not you. And I'm so glad for the number of people that have chosen to live according to God's truth. That's where the blessings of God are, folks. That puts us in a position where we could say exactly the same thing Jesus said, we always do the will of our Father. Amen. We love you. We thank you so much for being a part of us. Come on back and be with us tonight for Healing School if you can. And you're dismissed.